As Brian said, I grew up in Texas. And if you were to draw a map of the United States and draw the area that encompasses what people name Tornado Alley, where I grew up is about in the bottom left-hand corner of that map. So about as far to the edge of Tornado Alley as you can get is where I grew up. And for whatever reason, growing up in Tornado Alley made me very fearful of tornadoes. <laughs> now, in the 18 years that I lived in my hometown and in the next few years that I lived in a town not far from there, there were maybe three tornadoes that I can think of off the top of my head. So it wasn't a common occurrence, even though technically we resided in Tornado Alley. But for whatever reason, this fact resonated with me so much that I was always fearful of tornadoes when I was younger. Anytime there was any threats of, of thunderstorms or severe weather, I would become anxious and nervous because I just knew, I just knew that a tornado went up in my front yard. And so being at home late nights, I can remember, my, my parents live out in the middle of nowhere. Our closest neighbor is a mile and a half away. And so you could see thunderstorms coming from miles off. And at the time, I just knew that in that storm that was coming from the west, we could look out, we could see the lightning bolts. I just knew there was a tornado that was on a clear path to our house. And so I become fearful. And that was obvious to my parents. It was obvious to my parents that this made me nervous and anxious. And so every time a storm came across, my dad would gingerly, he would, he would grab me, he would grab me by the arms, and he would say, Nathan, you don't need to be nervous about this storm unless I'm nervous about this storm. Now, my dad was not claiming to have control over the weather, obviously, but he knew that there was no real danger. He knew there was no real threat. But for me, that was reassurance. Okay, my dad knows something that I don't. My dad is sure about my safety even when I'm not. And so over the course of my life, I became more comfortable in storms. And nowadays, I, I love thunderstorms. There's not much better than sitting out, sitting out on the back porch when there's just a thunderstorm rolling across the sky and just seeing the lightning and the rain that it provides, and I just absolutely love it. But that would not be the case if my father had not reminded me, Nathan, you don't need to worry about this storm unless you see me worrying about this storm. Well, tonight in our passage, we have a man and a people who were probably ravaged by fear, fear that would even overcome or even outmatch what I felt for a simple thunderstorm. Joshua, the writer of this text, has been installed as the new leader of Israel. He has been set up to lead this people into the promised land. Now, knowing Israel's history, we know at the end of Deuteronomy that this is the end of Israel's 40 years in the desert. They were punished by God for their disobedience, and so they were, they were cursed to wander the desert for 40 years. And Moses, who had led these people previously, was allowed to see the promised land, but he was never allowed to enter it. And so Joshua is installed as a new leader, and as we see here, he receives a commission by God to head the charge, to head into this new land. And so tonight, as we explore this passage... I pray and hope that we walk away with this, that as God's people, we would seek to follow God's commands and seek to follow God's law so that we may rest with confidence in God's promises. That we as God's people would follow God's law and rest with confidence 
in God's promises. And we're going to look at that in a couple of different ways. One, we're going to look at the new leader. We're going to look at Joshua. Who is he? Who is he as the leader of Israel? We're going to look at a remembered promise. The promise that God reveals to Joshua in this passage is not a new promise, but one that he reiterates to his people. And then lastly, we're going to look at God's steadfast law for his people. So let's explore Joshua for a little bit. So Joshua, he is installed the leader after Moses' death. And he's told to lead the people in the shadow of Moses' legacy. If you'll, if you'll turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 34, I want to read a couple of verses at the end of this passage to just show what kind of shadow Joshua is in. So read with me 34 verse 7. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands upon him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then these next few verses are just an amazing eulogy of Moses. Verse 10. And there had not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, who saw the Lord face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. These are the shoes that Joshua is being asked to fill. This is the shadow that that Joshua stands under, this great man of God that went before him. And so he's, he's... just experienced Moses' death. He's standing under his legacy. And then God begins his commands to, to Joshua. He says in verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. They are entering a land that they had never seen before. They are following a leader who had not been installed yet, and they are a new nation in a sense because this people is different than the people that Moses had led. If you think about it, 40 years has passed, so the older generation has gone. This new generation has risen up. The only life that this generation of Israelites know is those who are older remember the slavery and those who are younger just remember the wilderness. And now they're being asked to enter this new land uncertainty is mounting. And as we see in the preceding chapters, they don't know what kind of difficulty they're going to encounter. They don't know the strife that they'll experience. But what's interesting is that if anybody was picked to lead the people, it would be Joshua. Right? We read there in verse 1 that Joshua was Moses' assistant or his servant. He learned and was tutored underneath Moses. So if anybody was well-suited for the job of leading this people, it would be Joshua. He was groomed for leadership. But as we look over the course of Scripture, this stands in a little bit of contrast to the way that God normally picks his people or the way that God normally picks the leaders of his people. We think about Abram, this pagan idolater that God 
pulled out of idolatry for no reason, but he chose to. We think about how God chose Jacob over Esau when it seems like Esau should be the one to receive the birthright. We think about David when God went to choose the new king of Israel. Samuel went to go choose him and he says, no, don't look at the outward appearance of a man. Don't look at his strength. I'm concerned about a man's heart. And so he chooses David. And it ultimately culminates in Jesus. Isaiah tells us that there was nothing about Jesus' appearance that would have us esteem him. From a human perspective, most of the time, the leaders and the people that God chooses are not who we would choose ourselves, but he chooses them for a purpose. But Joshua's choosing is a little bit different. If anybody was to be picked, if anybody was next in line to lead the people, it would be Joshua. Now, as we'll look in just a little bit, there are certain keys to Joshua's success. Anytime you watch a sports broadcast or anything like that of a game, before the game starts, the commentators are always talking about the keys to success. What does this team have to do to be able to beat the other team? March Madness is about to start. So the keys for success, good rebounding, uh, hard, full press, full court defense, and then he'd be able to hit their free throws. You know, they, the commentators feel like if this team can accomplish these three keys, their, their chances of winning go way up. And so based on what Joshua is being tasked to do to lead this people into a new land, we might consider keys to success being military might. We might consider a key to success being diplomatic skill, political prowess, Something along these lines we would consider the, to be the keys to Joshua's success. But as we'll look at here in a little bit, that's certainly not the case. He's more concerned with Joshua's obedience. So we've got Joshua, this new leader. But Joshua is not left by himself. God reminds him of his promise. Look with me in verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all his people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As we read this promise, this would be a familiar phrase to Joshua. This would be a familiar phrase to the Israelites. Just a sampling of a few passages of the same promise that God had given to his people. In Genesis 15, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates. In Exodus 23, And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. Deuteronomy 7. And he will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed him. And then almost as if this is a reiteration, Deuteronomy chapter 11. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all of his ways and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. 
and every place on which the sole of your foot will tread shall be yours. This is a remembered promise. This is not something new for Joshua, but he's reminding them, I am faithful to my promise, and I am faithful to fulfill it. You are not the first one to hear these words, and you will not be the last, but I will accomplish my plans. And this promise that God reminds Joshua of is threefold. One, he promises him land. We see that as he defines the boundaries in verse 4. There are specific boundaries to which God will promise the Israelite people, and at the height of their, of their power, they did, in fact, own this land. In verse 5, we see that God promises Joshua and the people a victory. Verse 5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Now, the fact that there are men there in their path to begin with suggests that this land is already inhabited. Now, I don't know about y'all, but if I was given word or I heard a rumor that there was this alien people who had not been in this area before that was coming through, threatening to take our land, I don't think I would say, oh, hey, there's the Jews. Let's prepare our houses and leave for them. They can expect battle and war and conflict to come. But God promises them victory. But then, what's even more astounding, God not only promises them land, he not only promises them victory, he promises himself. Verse 5. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. What more could God's people ask for than God's presence? If we are truly loving the Lord our God, then nothing satisfies our hunger and our soul more than God himself. And so if anything solidifies this promise, it is the promise of his presence. It makes the other two, the the promise of land and victory, pale in comparison because of the weight that this provides. Now, In verse 6, it's interesting what he says. He says, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. It's important that pronoun there, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. This pronoun implies that there's an aspect in this promise to human responsibility. God is making this promise to them, but there is something about this promise that is dependent upon Joshua, about Joshua's involvement. Now, I think if we read it that way, we can be tempted to doubt God's faithfulness. But what this raises is the importance of human involvement. Yes, we believe that our God is completely sovereign over all things, but he does certainly use the things that we do to carry out his plans. And so while God's plan will be complete, there is an aspect here of which Joshua must be in obedience um, to accomplish. And that is confirmed in these last few verses as we talk about God's steadfast law. 
Now, in these last few verses, you'll hear this phrase over and over again, starting in verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. Uh, Verse 9, be strong and courageous. Now, given the odds that these people are about to encounter, what can provide this strength? What can provide this courage? Well, it's the promise that he made to them. It's the promise of land. It's the promise of victory. It's the promise of his own presence. Now, I was thinking about this. God's presence gives courage to his people. But this does not necessarily mean there's an absence of fear. Rather, what this means is there is a presence of fear that is rightly aimed The people of God are no longer fearful for the enemies that stand before him. The people of God are no longer fearful for the flooded Jordan that they're about to encounter. The people of God are no longer fearful of of the inadequacies of their new leader, but rather they have a holy and reverent fear of God. And the rest fades away. The strength that God's presence provides is provided in a rightly aimed fear. Because a right view of God gives God's people strength and courage and it gives God's enemies fear and terror because of the wrath that he exhibits on his enemies. But as we said before, there's a stipulation here. Verse 6, For you shall cause this people to inherit the land. Okay, so we've laid out that Joshua, there's some sort of involvement here. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. That's the stipulation. Joshua must obey the law of God. And he even goes further than that. Do not turn from it from the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The measure at which Joshua and the Israelites will be successful is the measure at which they're obedient to God's law. Verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it on, on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. If we go through the rest of Joshua, we realize that God's words are true. When they are obedient to God's law, they have good success. We see that when they encounter the Jordan. When they walk up to the Jordan, it's in the middle of flood season. Even with the technology that we would have today, crossing that river would be a daunting task. What more than Joshua leading this people? And this is not a well-trained army. This is a nation Elderly, men, women, children, everyone must cross. But they were faithful to God, and so God pulled back the waters. When they get to Jericho, they follow God's commands to just walk around the, walk around the city, blow their trumpets, yell a few, few times, and the walls tumble down. But then shortly thereafter, they, get to, they send a group of soldiers out to Ai, and they're demolished. Why? Because of the sin of a single man they make him. God's word is true and it proves true through the rest of this book. When they follow God's law, they are prosperous and successful. 
when they disobey, they're met with judgment and defeat. And so, what can Joshua do to continue to obey this law? Verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Joshua is instructed to speak the book of the law to the people. It's supposed to be out of his mouth. But you shall meditate it on it day and night. Now the word for meditate here means to murmur or to utter or to speak softly. So it's not just this internal thing, but it's also an external thing. I think many times, um, many times over the past few years, I've heard this phrase. Always preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. Now, I get the gist of this phrase, right? It means we are meant to live lives of, of love and compassion for others. We are supposed to show the love of Christ with the things that we do. More, more than just lip service, our, our hands and our actions should follow in that same example. But I think this phrase is also misguided. Because Paul makes it very clear, how will they ever believe if they don't hear? The word of God must be on our lips as much as it affects our actions. Because that's how we came to know Christ as our Savior, because we heard the word. The word was spoken to us, whether, whether by reading it on the page or by hearing it in a sermon, hearing it from a friend, hearing it from a parent. The important thing is the word of God entered us. It was told to us, and we repented and believed. And so this passage here tells us that Joshua must bring the law before the people. It shall not... Uh, the book of the law sh- shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. How can they know the law if they don't know the law? How can they obey the law if they've not heard it? God's word should be the embodiment of everything that Joshua does in the way that he leads the people and the way that he speaks to the people. And so we as Fisherville, should be of the same mind. We should seek to be obedient to the Word of God in our actions, but also in the way that we speak. And then finally, we come to verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? What What that tells us there is that this is not simply a pep talk. He is not simply saying, okay, Joshua, you got this, buddy. All right, you can do it. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? This is God's final commissioning, his final command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What more could provide strength and courage than the promise of God's presence through this daunting and seemingly impossible task. In Fisherville, we have the same promise of God's presence. Not because we were able to obey the law, but because Jesus was able to obey the law on our behalf. See, the one who came to this earth and was completely obedient to God's law, who... who the word of law did not depart from his mouth, he meditated on it day and night and was careful to do all that was written in it. He willingly 
went to the cross on our behalf, and he was willingly separated from the Father. That's important. Because we see over and over Israelite fails, and eventually they're, they're exiled out of the land. But then the better Adam comes, the better Moses comes, the better Joshua comes in Jesus. And he completely obeys and willingly is separated from the Father for our sake so that we can stand strong and courageous and not be frightened and not be dismayed because if we have trusted in his substitutionary atonement on the cross and his subsequent resurrection, we have the promise of God's presence forevermore. We can be strong and courageous because Christ stood on our behalf. And so this is always true for us. But don't take this too lightly. Don't think this is a cop-out to ignore the law and completely forsake it. Because those who have been regenerated, those who have been given a new heart, love God's law and seek to obey it with everything that they do. Now we will fail and there is God's grace for that, but we must continue We must continue in obedience, continue in faithfulness, knowing that God went faithful before us. We have great hope. Because no no matter how, how wretched we are, we have the grace of Christ, and we as individuals, and more importantly as a church, can follow in obedience after Christ and glorify Him here in Fisherville, in Utah, in South America, and to the ends of the earth. Because Jesus obeyed God's law completely for us. That is good news for us. Let us rest in that completely. Lastly, we see that this new leader came. And he might have been, he probably was fearful because of the death of Moses. We see that God remembered his promise to his people. He will remember it to us, for us. And God's law is good and perfect. And it was fulfilled by Jesus. Let's pray.